1: Welcome to the Bigger Pockets
2: Business Podcast, show number 19. And so, by virtue of just literally not having a dollar to my name or to my family's name, period, there really was no other option, right? Like, I, I didn't have 20 grand to just go spend on a production run, it just wasn't an option. Welcome to a real world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business.
1: Hey there, everybody. I am Jay Scott. I am your co host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. And I am here again this week with my lovely co host, Mrs. Carol Scott. How are you doing today, Carol?
0: Uh, Honey, super great. And also super grateful. I'm grateful that we get to be a part of this show. Every single week, we talk to guests who are so inspirational, have done amazing things, and they give so many great tips and actionable items. And I love being able to talk with them and educate our listeners and help them reach their goals. So I'm really grateful for that. And speaking of our listeners... Listeners, we would love, love, love to hear even more from you. We want to learn more about who you are, and we would love to get your feedback, okay? So here's what you can do to help out. We set up a form online. So go to biggerpockets.com slash survey. That's biggerpockets.com slash B-I-Z survey. You can fill out some information on there. Give us all of whatever you want us to know, what you want us to do better, do differently, what you like, what you don't like. And we might even reach back out to you and request a five or 10 minute phone call so we can chat with you and really hear everything you have to say. So again, biggerpockets.com slash biz survey. Help us make this show even more relevant to your world.
1: Absolutely. And thank you to everybody for all the great feedback you've already provided. Thank you for the great ratings on iTunes and the comments that we've received. We really appreciate all the feedback.
0: So much. So, so much.
1: Now, with that said, let's jump into today's show. Today, we have a really great episode. We're talking with a gentleman named Nick Ingersoll, and he runs a business called Barnana. And so Nick, a couple years ago, was nominated, or not just nominated, he was selected as one of Forbes 30 under 30. So he's been a serial entrepreneur for the last decade, probably more than the last decade. I don't know how far back his entrepreneurialism goes, but he tells us about some things he was doing in middle school to start out his path to entrepreneurial success. But these days, Nick is running a business called Barnana, where they buy, manufacture, and sell treats made out of bananas. And He has built this business tremendously over the last few years. They're in Whole Foods, they're in Costco, they're they're everywhere. And so Nick's going to tell us all about how he launched this business. He's going to take us through his supply chain and how he actually uh, creates and makes and sells these products. And best of all, he's going to tell us how he started out in this business Basically, this is a very capital intensive business. This is a business that takes a lot of money, but he got his start in this business by doing one thing that allowed him to start the business almost risk free. He basically got the opportunity to start the business with no money out of pocket before he knew for a fact that he was going to be successful, and he talks all about it. So with that said, let's jump into our show with Nick Ingersoll. How you doing today, Nick? I'm doing fantastic, man. How about you? I am doing well. Thank you so much for being here. We are... Yeah.
0: Thanks for joining us. This is an exciting one. And we're so looking forward to talking with you about your current venture, as well as so many other facets of your world and your story. It's very exciting.
1: Yeah. It's awesome because your story and what you can teach our listeners really extend so much past your current business. And we want to give some our listeners some context. So can you give us a quick overview of what your focusing your time on over the last few years. And then we're going to jump back and we're going to kind of talk through your origin story and, and, and build back up to where you are today.
2: Yeah, sure thing. So over the past few years, I've been primarily focused on Barnana. Previous to that, I co-founded a tech company in undergrad and Barnana was founded shortly thereafter. And so we, I've just been ruthlessly focused on building the brand and building a business. Um, you know, it's a company that I started with two co-founders in 2012. In San Diego, we moved up to LA shortly thereafter and it's been a wild ride. You know, we sell organic premium snacks in places like Whole Foods and CVS and Starbucks and all over the place. And uh, it's been pretty cool. You know, we take essentially bananas and other fruits that used to go to waste at farms and upcycle them into tasty things that you can eat instead of composting them into the ground. And so really, the last several years has just been, you know, constantly working, grinding, making the brand better, getting distribution, optimizing margin, everything that you have to do, including raising capital to build the successful food CPG brand.
0: That's so cool. And you clearly have gone over and above and beyond and built that amazing brand, and you've worked really hard. And we want to jump way more into the specifics of that. But first, we really want to jump into your story. So where where did you, where did Nick Ingersoll start his entrepreneurial adventure? When did you realize you had that entrepreneurial itch? And what were some of the successes and failures along the way?
2: So I grew up in a very rural part of Western Nebraska. Uh, And to give you an idea of how isolated that was, to get there, you have to fly into Denver, then drive across two state capitals, four hours to eventually arrive at sort of where I grew up. And so there wasn't a ton of opportunity. There wasn't a lot of, you know, I live in LA now and and you drive around. And even if you live in a bad neighborhood, which I've lived in a lot, uh, you still can drive to the nice neighborhoods and look up and you're like, oh, there's all this opportunity and stuff. And there's people who went to college and there's, you know, things happening where, uh, where where I was at, it was just uh, first of all, I didn't even live in, the, live in the town, let alone around anybody like that. And so it was a very sort of a, an isolated place. And so uh, in large part, what I can credit to being where I am today is the advent of the Internet. My generation was one of the very first ones ever to grow up with access to the Internet. Things like MySpace and BuddyPick.com. Shout out to BuddyPick.com. I don't, you know, that's a thing anymore. You know, AIM and, and all these things and connecting with people that are in new and different places that you just wouldn't know. You wouldn't know them. You wouldn't know anything about it. Uh, You didn't have the research and access to information. And so uh, I was able to sort of look up, hey, what does California look like? How do I get there? What do different colleges need? And so um, growing up like that, you know, we grew up on government assistance and grew up pretty rough around the edges. Uh, We didn't have any money or anything like that. And so uh, in my mind, it was like, okay, You're going to just start hustling every single moment that you got. So I'm out there shaving sheep. I'm uh, bailing hay. You know, I'm delivering papers. Uh, Eventually, when I was able to drive when I was 14, I would drive into town and go work at the cash register at Target and all kinds of just crazy, random stuff. You know, I'd be mopping floors. I'd do whatever I could do as a side hustle just to get cash because there was no cash. And even in school, maybe the first memory of mine, at least, is this is um, elementary school. I would. Uh, you're not supposed to have gum because kids are pretty irresponsible when it comes to their gum habits and um, myself included. And so since there wasn't any gum available, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of demand and no supply of gum. And so I decided <laughs> to start my own little gum retail company in elementary school where I would just like gum and I had this little case and I printed out like this little label that I designed on word or paint or whatever it was at the time and started selling that. And I think that was the first thing that that really sparked it.
1: That's Awesome. So just to give a little context, because a lot of our listeners aren't watching this, they're just listening to it and they can't see approximately how old you are. But I know for a fact that just a couple of years ago, you were selected to the Forbes 30 under 30. So as of a couple of years ago, at least you were under 30.
2: How old are you right now? I'm the big three o now. Ah, congratulations. Wow, yeah.
0: you made it to 30. One <laughs>
2: step closer, you know? <laughs>
0: That's amazing. But it sounds like you've been hustling since you've been doing all kinds of stuff to earn money and just figuring out what opportunities there were pretty much your whole life, right? I mean, I would suspect you're talking about, you know, shaving sheep and bailing hay, doing all those things. So you've been doing this forever. You just realized you needed a better life and you're gonna you're just going to make it happen? Yeah.
2: there. I mean, there really was no other choice for me, at least not the way that I saw it and continue to. To see it. And I do think that, that that general background that I grew up with sort of fuels even my daily activities today, sort of like this subliminal fear of being. Poor and, and all of that. And, you know, as in high school, I'd, I did a lot of acrylic and oil paintings. And so I would go and I'd start selling those at galleries, um, which was much more glamorous than, uh, baling hay or uh, branding cattle and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, so that was a way b- cooler side hustle. Um, and then that eventually is where I, I ended up developing the design skills and uh, eventually started designing logos and, and things of that nature. And so then by the time that I got to college, uh, that's when I started a consultancy, eventually a small boutique interaction. Active agency that uh, then turned into an augmented reality company. We raised money and blah blah blah, and and boom, there we go. Okay, so
1: I, I want to unpack some of this. So there, there was a whole lot in there. So you start a marketing company, a design company, and you said interactive media company an augmented reality company. There's a whole lot there. What was kind of the the transition? I mean, did you start a company and then decide, I'm going to do something different? Or did you start a company and say, oh, here's an opportunity to kind of morph it into something new? I mean, were these separate companies or were these just, was this just one company that just kept morphing into new and new things?
0: Yeah. yeah natural extensions and so on. Yeah.
2: Those kind of, um, they shape shifted for sure. So, you know, I graduated high school. I went out to Cal. I'd never been to California, by the way. I just was like, hey, there's palm trees and red hot Chili Peppers music video. <laughs> so yeah, that seems like a good spot. Yeah, so I ended up there to go to college and my way out of there was always get straight A's. And I hear a lot in entrepreneurship like, oh, you don't need to go to school, man. Just, you know, flunk out. It's so cool. But also, yeah, Bill, Bill Gates flunk, uh, dropped out of
1: college and, yeah. and Elon Musk dropped out of college. Everybody dropped out. But of course, they dropped out of
2: Harvard and they got into <laughs> Harvard in the first place. And Yeah. Super rich families, by the way, opulent <laughs> wealth running through their blood. So a little bit different. But yeah, also school can be a very useful tool, especially if you don't live in a city to get yourself out of poverty. And so that's the way that I saw it. Got straight A's, um, went out to California, go to college. And then that's when I started doing all those things. So I was still painting. The problem with painting and, and selling things in galleries is, first of all, yeah, you're purely reliant on ultra wealthy people to put a, an arbitrary value on your art, which is just weird. And then in addition to that, your return on time is like terrible. You're working for like 80 cents an hour, <laughs> you know, because you really care about your paintings. And like, and that's when I figured out. okay, well, I'm just gonna start designing packaging and logos and and websites. So I taught myself how to code and do all of that instead, which was far more lucrative. And then so the painting sort of morphed into that, which then eventually I teamed up with this guy that was doing SEO. And at the time, SEO in, you know, call it 2010 was like, so easy. You just, you know, keyword stuff, all this stuff. So I, I teamed up with him, we would do a lot of local businesses and things. And then that company actually morphed into the augmented reality company.
1: Cool. And so augmented reality, that means a lot of things to a lot of people. What specifically were you doing?
2: Yeah. So augmented reality is, is very interesting because I even still today, that word really isn't in the zeitgeist of, of our culture somehow, but very VR virtual reality is. So you can think of AR and, and VR, they're almost becoming synonymous, which is weird, but the fundamental difference between VR and AR. So, so VR, you have a headset on, right? And you're totally immersed in a brand new world, right? Oh, now I'm at Mars with Elon and, you know, like tossing gold coins into the fountain or whatever you're doing. And in, in augmented reality, you have sort of a screen in which you're looking through that could be a goggles, that could be a phone, and you're actually laying digital renderings on top of the real world around you. And you can do that through sort of a vector based augmented reality platform. So essentially, the camera's reading the vector points of a certain object. So it, maybe it's a chair. And so every chair, you know, you have your phone, you put put it up to a chair and it's in camera mode, right? And then it sees a chair. And then maybe you have like a little elf dancing on the chair, doing a little jig, something like that. Um, And then you can also do it uh, geolocation based, which is what we did. And so you can go on a map and say, okay, at this exact block, I'm going to have, you know, two elves fighting to the death with swords. And then uh, you walk over to that block and then boom, there you you see them fighting. And then if you look anywhere else, they're they're not going to be there. So that's essentially what augmented reality is. So, so this was
1: basically the Pokemon, Pokemon Go craze from a couple years ago. I'm telling you what,
2: if, if I could go back in time, okay, and just know that all I had to do was put a Pikachu <laughs> on the app, you know? <laughs> Pikachu, that was the key to the whole thing.
0: That was all you needed. That was all you needed. So this is so fascinating. And so now I'm just dying to know, how do you go from developing all that, having that is your business, And now you're doing Barnana. What is the transition there? That's just got to be such an interesting story. I'm dying to know what it is.
2: Yeah, it's one of those things where, uh, I, in in my view, opportunity only comes around so often. And the, your ability to recognize opportunity both in your life, the situation that you're in, and then also the market forces around you is really what can allow things to happen in, in really profound and, and big ways. And so for me, it was, we're, I'm, I'm doing the Candy Lab thing, I'm, I'm doing augmented reality, and there were some problems in the business, and my co-founders and I didn't see eye to eye. And, and that's pretty common, right? That's a normal thing and it's fine. And so, you know, I'd been working on Barnana actually at the same time that we were developing this augmented reality platform. I'm also going to school full time um, at this time. And so this is all during undergrad. And so, you know, hashtag absolutely no social life at all. And um, so I'm doing that and just trying to hustle and, and get by. I'm living in the ghetto and I'm, you know, but I have a lot of hope and optimism for the future and all this. And I'm taking my part to create what that future could be. And so working on Barnana is a side hustle, working on life as a side hustle. One of them started taking off. So I was doing that more disproportionately with my time. And then I started to switch as as my co-founders and I saw things a little bit differently. You know, I'm like switching more time to Barnana and then all of a sudden, you know, natural foods back in 2012 is not what it is today. Like today you have massive acquisitions. We are talking like an eight to 12 X on top line revenue, multiple for some of these exits of these, of these smaller brands selling to people like Kellogg's and Mondelez and Pepsi and, and all of that. And so, you know, it was, uh, it was one of those things where there was a big market demand for natural foods. And quite frankly, there just wasn't that many brands out there. There was Sambazon, there was Kashi, you know, a couple of those. But other than that, there was a real market opportunity and and it was the right time for us to do it. And that's kind of how that went.
1: Yeah. Okay. But I feel like you skipped over a really important piece there, the thing that I'm like most curious about. So at some point, you decided, I'm going to start a business that requires me to source food products, to manufacture new food products, to package them, logo, manufacturing, marketing, sales, get into retailers. This is a big undertaking. This isn't kind of like, yeah, I'm going to go start a gum business uh, in, in middle school, buying and reselling gum. So at what, how do did you conceive of? Because I'll I'll be honest, I've thought a whole lot about starting businesses over the years. And there aren't too many businesses I probably haven't thought about starting. But it's never occurred to me that I'm going to go buy bananas and create banana snacks and get them into retailers. And I mean, that's just a big undertaking. So what was the where did that come from? What started you down the road of I'm going to create a food business like
2: this? I think at the very structural level, there's two things. It's naivety and optimism. And those two forces combined can create some really amazing or terrible things, depending on how it goes. Fortunately for me, <laughs> um, it was more the former than the latter. But yeah, you know, it, it was one of those things where it's like, you know. I, uh, growing up, like everybody always doubted me. It was like, Oh, you can't do this. You can't move here. You can't do this and that and whatever. And like, there's so many outside forces just telling you, Oh, you can't do it. And then, and oftentimes what that manifests itself into is then you start thinking that in your own head. Right. And then you got that weird feedback loop that's, Oh, can I do this? Oh, I don't know. I don't know how to, what is sales? How do I get into whole foods, things of that nature. And I just made a mental decision to not allow any of that to enter my mind. Like that's just not a thing that happens anymore. Right. And so once, once that is released, it's like, you know what, I'll figure it out. I'm just going to figure it out. And I think the figure it out mentality is the only reason why I got into it, because to be honest with you, the food business is brutal. Like it's it's crazy. I mean, the margins are okay. They're not great. They're not software margins. They're not service margins. They're not cosmetic or supplement margins. And by virtue of that, you're going to have to raise more capital. You're going to have to spend less on marketing. And, you know, sourcing the way that we do it, you know, we're upcycling fruit from South America. You're working with South American banana farmers and plantain farmers. And, you know, it's 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 a very crazy. crazy supply chain that we've built. We built really, really, really unique products, which is in part why, why the brand has done so well, but is also, and if you have asked my VP of operations, uh, why our operations are so difficult because we chose to take the non-easy route. So even within food, you know, the fact that we're organic, even and this cumbersome, it's more expensive. It's harder to source. Your options are limited. And then to upcycle on top of that is, is pretty wild. But I think it's just saying like, it's all good. I can do this. It's fine. (laughs)
1: That's awesome. Okay, so I, I still need to unpack more though. Cause I'm still this is this is amazing to me. Oh so god. Yeah, this so is amazing good. to me. Okay, so you decide you want to do a food business. What came first? The banana or bar Like did you decide I want to. I want to start a banana business. Specifically, let's figure out a banana business to create. Or did you decide I want to start a food business, and then that led you towards bananas? What where, where, what what was kind of the what, what came first?
2: Yeah. So the thing that came first is the banana, if you will, or the d- dehydrated banana. So my business partner he grew up in Brazil, and there's all these dehydrated banana snacks, and they're all over B- Brazil and in, in sort of like local markets. They're wrapped up in cellophane, sold on street carts. They look weird. They're sticky. Uh, they're not a great eating experience but they taste delicious. And so there were some brands down there doing, they would take the banana paste and they would wrap it up with sugar and bake it, or they would uh, make a little bar out of it. They would do all these different things. And at the time we were seeing things like acai come to the U.S. and do super well, something like a Sambazon, right? And so acai, it's been eaten in South America forever, especially in Brazil. Like it's, it's just been served in sort of a bowl at a restaurant, that kind of thing. And then same thing with coconut water, right? Vitacoco and Zico, they go down and, and take this idea of coconut water that's been served all over Central and South America forever. And and also in Southeast Asia. And no one had just thought to package this thing in a premium way and sell it in the U.S. in supermarkets. And so that's sort of the market opportunity that we saw. And it's like, hmm, a little light bulb went off. It's like, there might be something there, right? Taking these previously commoditized products that are very popular in these areas and then packaging them in a premium way and selling them in new and different form factors. And so I think that a large part of it was was that.
0: Cool. So, you mentioned in there you had a business partner who grew up in Brazil and maybe other partners that were part of forming this right off the bat, right? So, tell us more who are those partners? how did you sync up with those partners? And uh, have your roles changed? Or how how did that all start at the beginning? Who are they? How did you find them? And tell us more about how that all works out.
2: Yeah, this one was pretty serendipitous. So uh, again, started this business when I was still in an undergrad. And so I was also involved in a lot of uh, associations and, and groups on campus because I thought that was a good way to lead gen for my then service business of designing logos and websites and stuff. And so we threw an intern fair. So I put this intern fair together and there's all these brands and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go in all these booths. Like, they're looking for interns, I'm looking for clients. So, so I go in there thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to you know find some people to make logos for and stuff. And um, then I met my now business partner, Coway. And so he had a bicycle manufacturing company at the time. I was like, oh, it's a perfect target, right? Smaller business. It's not Black and Decker or one of these giant businesses that are there. And so we became friends. And then um, through the course of, of, you know, getting to know him and, and talking to him more, you know, the bicycle thing uh, just kind of wasn't a, a, a fit. I think that his focus was sort of turning off of that. Maybe he was thinking about winding down the business, that sort of thing. And so it sort of transitioned into this, hey, there's also this thing from Brazil and there's these dehydrated bananas and this and that. I've been thinking about this. And then that's sort of how that whole thing sparked. And our third partner, Matt, um, I went to undergrad with him at San Diego State. And so a uh, very strange way, Matt was working for Coway's roommate at the time, actually. And uh, that's how we all three came together. And like I said, we worked on this actually as a side hustle for probably almost two years, like the better part of a year and a half at least. And then eventually said, let's just launch this thing at, at Expo West, which is the biggest natural foods products expo in the world.
1: So, okay, this is great. And one of the things, I, I'm, I have so many questions here. It's like, I, I feel like I could ask for, for the next four hours. But here's one of the cool things about starting a business. It never ends up being what you originally envisioned it being. So this was 2012, I believe I read that, that you started Barnana. Yep. So, so most likely over the past seven years, things have changed from your original vision. And I'm sure we'll get there. But I'm curious, what was the original vision for the company? What kind of products did you envision that you'd be making? Where did you envision you'd be selling them? Who are your customers going to be? Um, and then I'd love to talk through
2: as we go through this conversation, how that's changed, if it's changed over the last seven years. Yeah, it's definitely changed. I mean, in the early stage, it's like you you just want to make something that's sexy. Pretty much, right? You want to make something that looks great and hopefully, and especially if you're in food, has to taste great, by the way. A lot of people nowadays have things have changed. <laughs> people make food that tastes terrible now um, and expect it to sell, uh, which is a whole a whole different story. But yeah, it's it's you got to make something that looks sexy in the, early on. You got to attract investors because the fact of the matter is, if you want to scale at retail a food business, you're going to have to raise money. There just are no two ways about it, unless you come with some Jeff Bezos family money style um, financial back. So, you yeah, prepare yourself for that. And, you know, it's in the early stages, it's, it's just a lot of that. It's being scrappy. What we saw was we, we wanted to be the brand synonymous with banana-based snacks. Bananas sell more than apples and oranges combined in terms of tonnage in the U.S., which is insane. And when we were looking at the coconut water and the acai equivalents, like, nobody even knows what that is. And, and people in Michigan or wherever, Nebraska call it, don't even know how to pronounce acai. Still... Today and so everybody eats bananas. Everybody's familiar with bananas, and so we just saw that we had such a clear path to sort of uh, have sort of our brand be able to connect with people in, in a more meaningful way, just intuitively with things that they already eat. So that was the original plan, and and since then we've also expanded out into plantains, which kind of came out of of left field. You know, plantains are a cooking banana, and you know we're like, well, that still fits within sort of our vision. And when we started the company, we knew we wanted to be a sustainable brand. We we knew that we wanted to be organic and we've really stuck true to those values. So in terms of the the basic structure of the business, so the, the mission, vision, value stuff, it hasn't changed much at all. The market has changed a ton, um, which you know, I was talking about earlier with the food that tastes bad. You know, a lot of people now, you know, the upcycling thing was something that we started very early and it was something that we just thought was the right and sustainable thing to do for the for the food supply. It was something we discovered actually as we were sourcing bananas. And now uh, the mission, so you know, quote unquote mission of, of brands is very important and for good reason, of course, right? Brand storytelling and the rest. But what ends up happening, one negative externality, at least that I see in in the way the market's changed since we started, is now people are making food that tastes so bad, um, but they have a really cool mission and they're just banking on that. And that might work at Whole Foods and, and some of these more natural accounts, but that's definitely not gonna work at scale.
1: Got it. So so we're talking about the taste of food, which leads us into the discussion of, well, first I want to hear about a, what a couple of your products are, because I know you have a whole bunch of products, but how are you sourcing your... I guess we can call them raw materials, your bananas. How did you find the, uh, the source of your bananas? Who's doing the manufacturing? Who's actually creating the product for you? And what does that process look like of actually getting bananas imported to the country, assuming you're getting them from, from outside the country, and actually getting them packaged and on the shelves? What does that whole process look like?
2: strap yourself in. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Our our, our supply chain is super crazy. Um, So I'll start with the bananas. So the bananas that we use are upcycled, meaning that they would normally go to waste. So when people think of wasted bananas or bad bananas, they think of the black bananas that are sitting on their kitchen that fruit flies are around and all that. That's not what we use. We use bananas that are still green. In fact, we have to ripen them before we can dehydrate them and then import them to the United States. And so what waste, what food waste looks like on a banana farm is the bananas are. too big, too small. They got a bump or a bruise or a scratch or a something where they'll be rejected for export to either the EU or to the US. So that's what what upcycled bananas actually are. And so about twenty percent of all the bananas that are grown go to waste before they even reach the boat to get shipped off to wherever. And in places like Ecuador, Honduras, Guatemala, these places, you know, they export up to eighty percent of all the bananas that they grow because their populations are super small. Their banana their banana farming is massive, and the demand in other places like the US and the EU. Is is super high. And so we use those bananas, we dehydrate them in South America, and then we put those on a boat into massive containers, take them into the US and we do all the final processing here. So that would be covering them in chocolate or peanut butter, mixing them with coconut or mixing them with other sorts of fruits. And then of course, packaging them and and all of that. Now, the plantains are a fundamentally different supply chain, actually. So the plantains, which is really crazy. So last July, I was in the Amazon rainforest, our plantain chips come from these indigenous farmers. Farming tribes in the middle of the Amazon, a very remote part of the Amazon. And so, you know, there's not a lot of organic plantains. We had to sort of, you know, build this trail in the supply chain because there just wasn't one that existed, which is kind of crazy, which was very unlike the bananas. So we're actually going in to each individual village of maybe maybe it's a community of 50, 100, 150 people, 20 people up and down the Amazon River Basin and saying, hey, we know you're growing plantains for the shade, for cacao and guayusa and these other things. Can we get these farms? organic. We'll help you do it. We'll foot the bill. We'll do the whole thing. And then uh, get those things turned around, put those plantains into a truck, have them trucked over to the city have them peeled, cut, fried, put into a container, sent to the U.S. and then packaged. And so that was a really crazy experience. You know, this is something where you go into the Amazon rainforest and, you know, I speak Spanish, but they don't speak Spanish. They speak the native tongue of Quechua. Right. And so I'm speaking to an interpreter that isn't speaking them in Quechua. And we're doing these town halls and, you know, they've never seen anybody that isn't doesn't look exactly like them that all. Also lives in the Amazon. And so it was a super special experience and, and also cool to see how we can impact positive economic growth in those areas.
0: Nick, my mind is so massively blown right now. I don't even know where to begin. So, wow. Okay. So how, how do you even get like a connection? Okay. So you're talking about how this all grew organically and it, things just things just kind of happened as you made them happen. But I don't know how you organically for example have a connection that's leading you to these indigenous tribes in the Amazon rainforest when their native tongue is Chichua and etc like how did you even go about saying oh we need to go source some indigenous tribes in the Amazon rainforest and hold these town hall meetings how does how does your mind even get there to realize that is the key to sourcing what you need for your business yeah
2: I mean sometimes you just don't know what you don't know like the ignorance is bliss the naivety thing that I was talking about earlier so' like, oh, yeah, well, people eat plantains and there's like fried plantains all over the place in Puerto Rico and Cuba, like everywhere. And so there's got to be organic ones, right? No, there wasn't. (laughs) So we're like, uh Oh, what are we going to do? We said everything that we're going to make is organic. And so now we have some work to do. And so we essentially contacted our partners in South America that were already doing the bananas and just started doing digging and finding fixers here and there and intros and sort of this long chain of of introductions to eventually end up at that place. And, uh, you know, they had like a very, very small production of, of organic plantains. We're like, okay, well, can we expand that? How can we? And so now it turned into, yeah, we're going literally village to village to expand the supply chain as as the brand grows here stateside.
1: Before we move on to the next part of our show, let's hear from one of our show sponsors.
0: Small business owners wear a lot of hats. And while some hats are really great, others like the filing taxes and running payroll hat. Yeah, not so great. So that's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll taxes and managing a team actually easy for small businesses. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Oh, and you can even get direct access to certified HR experts too. 90% of customers say switching to Gusto was easy. You can do it in less than 10 minutes. And if you're thinking, oh, I already work with tools like say QuickBooks. Well, get this, Gusto can integrate with those platforms so you can keep everything in one place all online. So listen up for this offer. Because you listen to Bigger Pockets business, you get 3 months free when you run your first payroll on Gusto. This is one hat you're going to be glad you gave up. So try a demo and see for yourself at gusto.com/bpb like Bigger Pockets business. Again, that's gusto.com/bpb.
1: Believe it or not, the world isn't built for entrepreneurs and small business owners like us. Sometimes it seems like there's no end to the hurdles we face while starting, maintaining, and growing our businesses. Finding smart tools to make running your business easier is crucial, which is why I'm here to tell you all about FreshBooks. FreshBooks is accounting software specifically designed for small businesses. It organizes and streamlines time-consuming bookkeeping and accounting tasks, allowing you to do things like create and send branded invoices in just 30 seconds, set up credit card payments right on your invoices to get paid twice as fast, and export tidy reports for expenses, invoice details, and sales tax to make working with your accountant to tax time a breeze. FreshBooks customers say they save an average of 192 hours a year. Imagine what you could do with that extra time. Right now, we're offering our listeners a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks, no credit card required. So just go to FreshBooks.com and enter Bigger Pockets Business in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Again, go to FreshBooks.com and enter BiggerPockets Business in the How Did You Hear About Us section. So, so just out of curiosity, because you've used the term organic a number of times, and I know everybody gets confused and, and has a different definition of organics. And you say there's no organic plantains. What is organic? What is the definition of organic that you're working off of when you say there are no organic or organic plantains out there?
2: Thank you so much for bringing that up. i um, totally remiss because I'm In the industry. So, you know, you're in your bubble. That's a that's actually a great thing to bring up. So a lot of people don't know what organic is. So what organic is, it's a USDA certification. So it is uh, when you're getting food, food is largely unregulated, by the way, like a lot of people also don't know this, like the majority of the food that you're consuming. No one's checking the nutrition label. Okay. No one's checking the ingredient statement at all, unless you are certified organic, then they're going to check your ingredient statement. So that's one of the uh, parts of the NOP or the National Organic Program that the USDA has. So uh, being organic is a USDA certification where people are going to the farms, seeing what kind of things are getting put, sprayed into the dirt, onto the plants, that whole thing, certifying the supply chain. And you have to do audits throughout the year and get recertified every single year. And what people often think is like, oh, well, you just throw some seeds in the dirt and that must be organic, right? And it's not because you can still spray that with Roundup. You could spray that with any number of herbicides, pesticides, etc. And then depending on what you're growing, some of those herbicides and pesticides can get into the food. It also creates some runoff, some agricultural runoff. I grew up Again, in, in a very rural part of Nebraska, where I you was know, a little kid, I'd go outside and there's like these airplanes, like, meow, and I'd be like, oh, no, dad, they're watering the plants. And he comes <laughs> out and he's like, that's not water. <laughs> yeah, don't don't get under that. Yeah, so, um, so there's a very um, high water table there, right? And so there's some seepage in, into the water and all these things. And so that's why we made the decision to say we're going to be USDA certified organic instead of sort of just relying on sort of the natural claims uh, that some other brands tend to do.
0: Well, so it sounds like to have like this, this USDA certified organic company, and you're talking with your, your, so you're multinational, right? You, you have such a capital intensive business to be able to accomplish all those things. You're sourcing from overseas. You've got all this import and you've got the production, you've got the packaging, you've got the sales, you've got the branding, all of these things. And it sounds like you mentioned you came from nothing in Nebraska and you had Kauai and Matt as your partners. Where did the money come from? So you had to have some financing at some point. How did that all come into fruition?
2: This is a crazy story, actually. And this just sort of shows how when you're prepared for something and an opportunity comes along, you're, you're ready to execute. So Again, we were working on this thing as as a side business and all we really had was the branding that I designed. So, you know, I designed all of the packaging and branding and and all of that personally. And so we had something that looked legit and, you know, we'd been working on it for a while. And it's like, oh, this Expo West thing's coming up, which is the big, you know, expo for natural foods. Like, well, maybe we should just go like, let's just get a booth. Right. And just like put the branding up looks legit and just see what happens. So we did that. And upon doing that, we had Whole Foods and Wegmans come by. Uh, Wegmans is a big East Coast retailer. Everybody knows Whole Foods. And they're like, this is great. We want to take it. (laughs) And uh, we're like, wow, "Uh, uh, good, good, good. Yeah, yeah, we're ready. We're ready. And we'd never made a production run. Right. We just had a little bit of samples. I went to FedEx and like printed some stickers out, put them on packages and put them in a glass case so no one could like feel how not legit they are. But they looked great (laughs) under a glass case. And so when they came with the P.O., It was like, oh, dang, like we got we got something here, you know, and we essentially took those those POs after Expo West and went out and raised capital based on that. So um, that's how we first got money into the business. So we raised sort of a a seed round with 100 percent warrant coverage to to give some investors some further confidence that they'll be able to reinvest in the company at the previous valuation if the company is doing well, which is a a nicety for them and sort of went from there.
1: I love this. Okay. So this reminds me back about six weeks ago, we had a guy on the show named Alan Donegan, who teaches basically how to start businesses with little risk, little capital. And basically, this is right out of his playbook. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs take this playbook where they want to reduce their risk, they want to reduce their their upfront capital expenditures. And so what you did was you created a brand You, I don't want to say faked a product, but you faked a product and you put it out there to see what kind of response you get. And you literally started getting orders before you started spending money on sourcing, production, manufacturing, packaging. You literally proved out your model before you had to spend any money. And that is absolutely brilliant. And I think that's just a great reminder to our listeners that starting a business, even a business that seems so ridiculously capital intensive um, and so risky, there are ways if you're creative that that you can do that with a much lower risk and a whole lot less money.
2: Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point. You know, it, it, that's exactly what we did. We definitely made a brand that looked awesome, but wasn't Legit. It looked legit, but we didn't have product to send anybody, you know? And, and, and that's true, you know? It's it, also for me at the time, like. I didn't have any money. I'm living in the hood. I'm, you know, commuting to La Jolla to uh, work with Matt and Coway because that's where Coway's roommate's office was, and all this. So it was a really weird dichotomy going from where I was living to then drive over to essentially the Beverly Hills of San Diego, if you will. <laughs> um, and so, by virtue of just literally not having a dollar to my name or to my family's name, period, there really was no other option either. Right? Like I, I didn't have. Twenty grand to just go spend on a production run it just wasn't an option.
1: Okay, so now you've got your first order from Whole Foods. You do your production run. Presumably, you get the the product in Whole Foods. How did that go? How was the uh, how was the reception there? And how did you expand from there? What were the next uh, the next big retailers or the next big marketing channels?
2: Yeah, the reception was great. You know, we when you're launching a food brand, it's very important to keep in mind channel strategy first. So by channel strategy, I mean, you know, there's certain channels of retail. So you have sort of your natural channel, if you will, which is Whole Foods and the like. Uh, You have your big box, which is your Walmart and the like. You have club, which is more like Costco convenience, which is a shell station or a 7-Eleven. And so you want to be really, really mindful of what your channel strategy is, because that's what all of your activities and dollars are going to map to. And so we decided the very first channel we're going to go after is the natural channel. It just made intuitive sense for us. So we expanded in Whole Foods. We started out in a couple of regions, quickly expanded into the rest of the regions in the country, went global um, and also went into all the small mom and pop infra accounts. Also in the food space, there's a very important piece of this that a lot of people don't realize, and that's brokers. And it's one of those necessary evils. I wouldn't uh, they're not evil. Uh, They're great. Uh, Shout out to all the (laughs) brokers out there. Um, But <laughs> no, it's a, it's an evil for your, your P&L, right? Because your money getting drained out. <laughs> evil for your oh, margins. There you go, yeah. And so, uh, but the great thing about them is that they have exist. They have pre-existing relationships with all, especially these smaller retailers. Like, have you ever heard of Nugget Market? Well, if you're not in the Sacramento area, you probably haven't. But it's a great, great market. And, you know, they have... 13 stores that sell a lot of product. But if you don't have these brokers all over the country, there's just no way for you to know that. There's no way for you to create those relationships with the buyers because the buyers have a limited amount of time. They have thousands and thousands of SKUs in each store and they're not gonna meet with each individual brand all the time, especially ones that aren't even in there. It's just not gonna happen. And so plugging into a broker network is a decision that we made really early on. Um, one of the brokers that we work with actually made a cash investment in the business. So that was in addition to just sort of having a brokerage network, And that also helped us out in in terms of raising capital and giving confidence in the business and giving us confidence in what we're doing. You know, if we're getting money from somebody like that, who's seeing the likes of Cliff Bar and all these other giant brands, then we must be doing something right. Right? At least that's what we thought back then. And so, yeah, that's a channel strategy first and then expand from there. So, you want to have this is our first target, second target, third target uh, from Whole Foods. You know, now we're in places like Walmart, like Costco, things of that nature. But it's all been very sequential year over year.
0: I really appreciate you breaking down those different channels. Um, it's it's interesting. I've done a lot of different product development to lots of different things along the way, but I've never been specifically in the food space. And I that was a big lightball moment for me there, right? Because of course you think of your different listeners, your different audiences, your different markets, your different demographics of all of those. But just, I think that's a really interesting tip for our listeners, whatever kind of product it is, if you're in a food business or if you're in some type of entertainment product or whatever it is, to look at those specific channels, like breaking down the convenience versus the club versus the health, versus the general grocery, that type of thing, I think puts you in a really interesting, different, and focused mindset to get you where you need to go, right? So thank you for breaking that down. Yeah,
1: it's, it's kind of like you don't go after the shotgun approach. We don't want to be all things to all people. We want to define what our brand is and and really target the the customer demographic that wants that brand. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of business owners make. They say, yeah, everybody in the world's going to love my product, and I'm going to sell it. I'm going to have... 7 billion customers out there because everybody's going to want our product for some reason, when in reality, there's you need to connect with a, a very specific subset of that customer demographic and really serve them specifically.
2: That's exactly right. The shotgun approach, I, I've seen some Epic failures. I mean, (laughs) crazy epic failures from doing exactly what you just said. They're like, everybody's gonna love my product, though. Don't worry about it, you know. And then they go to call it. 12 15,000 retailers in less than a year and sure the open orders are great and then you get no repeat and then you're getting discontinued the very next year because you didn't build that core audience in one area and also you spread out all of your trade dollars your marketing dollars all of the rest of it your brokerage dollars to different brokers for each channel and then you know that story usually doesn't go well
1: that, that's great. So you're the CMO, the chief marketing officer for Barnana. So you're the guy to talk to about the marketing strategy. How did you come up with your brand, your marketing? How did you decide on, I guess, what we were just talking about, who your target buyer or customer demographic was going to be? How did you come up with that?
2: Yeah, so with us, it's it's one of those cases that I think a lot of people find themselves in, right? Because everybody in theory is a consumer of your product. It's chocolate-covered banana. I mean, you know, it's a plantain chip. Who's not gonna wanna eat that? But that's also the pitfall, right? Because you, you, you can't be everything to everybody. And so you really do have to go after that core audience. And again, that's why channel strategy is so important because you also know who is there. And so long as the channel also matches up with the target audience that you're trying to reach, then, you know, everything is sort of aligned. And so that's essentially what what we did. And the way that we've marketed the product, you know, from the very beginning, it was, we're gonna do guerrilla marketing, we're doing a lot of growth hacking. Again, in 2012, this was, uh, you know, a lot of growth hacking online, which I had been doing for a long time. And then growth hacking in the real world by doing crazy guerrilla marketing stunts that cost you zero dollars. Again, going back to having to constantly raise capital until you reach a certain inflection point where you become massively profitable in food takes a long time. And so the more things that you can do for free, the better. And so we would do things like, you know, at at Expo West the next year, I showed up with like a, a blimp with a banana on it and flew it around, you know, got a stuck in an AC vent. hired a, <laughs> <laughs> a tired, terrible, uh, don't get in me, with a, get in a, an air balloon with me. Um, and then we had, a, I, I hired some professional break dancers. It was very cheap for like, you know, an hour to just go disrupt the very beginning of the show and just like make a scene and they're in banana and gorilla costumes and everybody's filming it and then putting it on Instagram and on Snapchat and all of that, things of that nature. I've launched a fictitious product called Gorilla Milk if you go to GorillaMilk.org um, you can <laughs> see what that looks like and so we were like yeah, we, I released a press release like yeah we were down and you know milking eastern lowland gorillas with our own hands to get this paleo unhomogenized milk and stuff and like and,
0: uh, 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 so, is
2: and we like really put it on like it was a thing we are watching and we're getting inquiries from like every single dairy publication you can possibly imagine yeah and then also a lot of angry vegan emails uh, which are hilarious <laughs> and then uh, you know, it was all sort of a PSA in the to say, just because you can milk a gorilla doesn't mean that you should. And just because (laughs) you can use pesticides doesn't mean that you should. And yeah, it took some of my time and thinking and and things of that nature, but we didn't pay a ton of media ad spend. It was just purely earned and and things like that. So the more sort of gorilla activities you can do, and I'll just leave you with one more gorilla activity because it's just ridiculous and there's so many of them we've done. So the Ironman World Championships happen in Kona, Hawaii, and it's it's this triathlon championship that happens every year. And we didn't have the money to just like go buy the booth space and pay them for the sponsorship and all this BS. And so what we decided to do was buy a giant 20 foot long banana, inflatable banana with our logo on it, and then wake up really early in the morning and then swim it out into the bay and <laughs> with a brick on the bottom and then anchor it in the bay where everybody swims in the morning.
0: That's hilarious. We <laughs> so just have this
2: giant banana billboard in the middle of the ocean where all of our target consumers are, everything else, and we didn't have to pay anything. Of course after a couple of days somebody else swam out there popped it took it away but um
0: <laughs> but it was there it was well worth a, spin. Now, a 20 foot long inflatable banana where do you i mean is that right on amazon where does one go to find a 20 foot long inflatable banana this is so cool Ollie i Baba. love the ingenuity and the creativity every step of the way you just don't stop it's just the idea is just keep going and building your brand and you're just out there in front of any in front of everybody it's awesome
2: yeah it's a way to keep things fun too
0: Awesome. Absolutely really. Fun. Yeah.
1: So can I jump into the numbers a little bit? A lot of our listeners are really intrigued by numbers for different businesses and we know every business is different. So could you tell us a little bit about so The cost structure. So, um, And you don't have to go into tremendous detail, but what do the margins look like in your food service business, maybe compared to general food service businesses? Um, Where is the bulk of your cost coming from? Is it the sourcing of the bananas? Is it the manufacturing into your final product? Is it the packaging? You mentioned that you have a broker, so presumably you have wholesale channels, which is eating up a lot of your costs and reducing your margins. Can you take us through just a little bit the, the numbers of producing the product and selling the product? That that you
2: have. Definitely. So I'll start from the bottom up, actually. I think that's probably the, the most helpful. So if, if you're looking at a, your PL it would be going from the very top of that PL down. And so start with product margin, just straight up product margin. So what are you selling it for minus your cost of goods sold? And in the food space, that number is going to be somewhere between 45 and 65% on average. And so if you're batting anywhere between that range early on, especially towards the lower end, then with scale, it's likely that you'll get a better margin in the Future, but you, you got to be within. If you're under that range, yeah, it's gonna get a little hairy. It's gonna be hard to raise capital. You're gonna have a lot of questions. The scalability is gonna come into question. All those sorts of things, and so you definitely want to be within that sort of 45 to 65 percent range. Now, 65 is very high, uh, especially in food. And so uh, our our business, uh, we have very good margins. Well, for for you know, for the industry, of course, uh, not software margins. But uh, so, you know, so, it-
1: so, so so let me interrupt you really quick, just so I can clarify for our listeners that may not be familiar with some of these terms. So what you're talking about are gross margins, which means for every dollar that you bring in, people buy a dollar worth of your product, it's costing you between 45 cents and 65. I'm sorry, you're earning between 45 cents and 65 cents in profit on the cost of that that, that product. That doesn't include all of your overhead costs, like if you have an office space or paying employees and stuff like that. That's strictly 45 to 65 cents of every dollar you make is what you keep on the pro- from the product sale or from the product development. And then after that, you then pay all of your overhead expenses as well, which again, reduces your, your profit as well.
2: That's right. So, okay. yeah. So essentially, if, you know, you can look at it this way, you have your product margin down from there. You're going to have your gross margin from there. You're going to have, you know, you can call it your contribution margin and you're eventually going to have your net income margin. Right. And so the product margin, it's just, you know, you maybe, uh, your cost of goods sold is a dollar and then you sell it for uh, $2.35 to a distributor. And then the distributor is going to take somewhere, and, and the s- distributor is very highly, but they're going to take somewhere between, call it 7 mm, to 30%. 30% would be a DSD, somebody who's a small distributor that goes into the store and actually builds displays and things. And then the 7 to 15% range is more like your glorified trucking companies that just pick your stuff up and deliver it to places like Whole Foods. And so then they actually take... Ownership of the product, right? And they sell it. To Whole Foods. And so you're not going direct. You go to direct to some retailers, but oftentimes there's a, distribu- a distributor intermediary that you're actually selling to. And then once you get to a Whole Foods or a name your retailer, they're going to take, you know, a 42 to 50% margin generally. So you end up with a product that's $5. So something that costs you a dollar, sold it to the distributor for, call it two, two bucks, two bucks and fifty cents, something in that range. And then the end consumer is going to end up buying it for five bucks. So you can see how that scales in retail very quickly. So the biggest cost you're ever going to have is the retailer's margin. And so, you know, that's why you have to front load that product margin as much as possible. And then the way you're building your P&L, right, you got your product margin, and then to get to your gross margin, you're gonna have to factor things in like trade spend. So at retail, you are required to have trade spend, which essentially means when you go into, you know, name your name, your favorite retailer, and you see two for seven or 20% off or whatever, uh, the brands are funding all of that. That's not the retailer's not funding a dime. And so, you know, 15 about 15% is pretty standard 15 to 20% depending on the product category is what you would expect to spend in trade spend and so once you have your product margin you have to take call it 15 to 20% out for trade spend then you end up with your gross margin and then underneath your gross margin you're going to hit all of your you know standard expenses your SG&A all that kind of thing to to actually get to to your net income
1: Awesome. Okay. So breakdown. and so if you had to talk about your operating margins, your your net
2: income margins, what what are we looking at here? Five to ten percent? Well it depends at what scale you're at, right? Because if you're growing really fast, then you're gonna need to be hiring people before you need them right? Because you, you you can't sort of scale and then like try to back high. It's just not how it works. And so there's a lot of upfront costs that you have to foot before you can actually reach the revenues that, that you want. So it's a bit of a cat and mouse game, really. And you don't really see operating leverage in food businesses until you're hitting, you know, right, like break even for a really fast growing food business. Somewhere in the 25 to $35 million top line revenue range is where you're going to start getting positive net income.
1: So ah uh, that's and that's really interesting. I think that's what a lot of business owners fail to see is that you, you hear about a company like Walmart that's living on uh, one or two or three percent margins um and but they're only they they weren't doing that. they were operating at a tenth of the scale. they'd be losing a ton of money. so you need to get to a certain scale before your margins really are optimized and you're making the most money and that can take I assume for you it took years.
2: Yeah, well said. Well said on the Walmart piece. I think that's an exact core. That's a very fitting corollary. And yeah, it does. It takes it takes a lot of years. And it depends on how fast you want to scale. You know, you have to scale right. Uh, You know, we talked about the shotgun approach earlier. And and it's a really a factor of that. What's the risk tolerance? What's the market opportunity? And you know, how when do you think you can find that leverage? And oftentimes, too, like you'll see these brands and, and to call out a couple very successful ones that were acquired recently, Crave Jerky or RX Bar, you know, they were acquired for hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, they were also not profitable right, until they reached a, that that scale range in, in terms of revenue.
0: So talk about scaling, talking about a market opportunity. What is it that's next for Barnana? What's coming up?
2: So we're working on something super exciting.
1: Ooh. Ooh, are you going to announce it here or do we have to wait?
2: <sighs> it's a secret. Okay. Oh, oh, no. I know. Um, it, it really is. So first of all, tastes delicious. It will be my Mm, probably top two, one or two position in my favorite products that we make. And you'll be seeing it probably around, call it March, I want to say, for the very first time.
0: Fantastic. Okay. 6 months out from new super secret awesome surprise. <laughs> I can't wait. I'll so make like,
1: sure you have our address so that we can see it in maybe <laughs> February. <laughs> there you go. There you go.
2: Absolutely. So, okay,
0: fine. <laughs> that's a secret. We can live with that. But what is next for Nick Ingersoll? You've got so many cool things in the works. What is next for you?
2: Yeah, I'm just going to keep doing my thing, you know, continue to build the Barnana brand, continue to work on side hustle projects in my spare time because that's just what I like to do, keep doing my own podcast, um, and hopefully helping people in the future. You know, all all these things that, that I've had to learn firsthand eh, are tough. And like, there's no way there's really is no other way to learn them. And for anybody listening to this podcast that's thinking about launching a food brand, um, I I very much hope that this was very insightful and helpful because, you know, there wasn't a resource like that out there for me. And I think that that's, uh, if you have something that you can give out for free, that gives a lot of people a lot of value, then you should do it. And so that's what I'm going to continue to do.
1: That's awesome. And does it concern you at all that you're on this podcast and you've given away all your secrets? And now all of our listeners are going to run out. They're going to fly to the Amazon. They're going to start sourcing their own organic plantains and bananas. They're going to meet with these indigenous tribes. I mean, you've basically given away the uh, the 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 keys to the castle. (laughs) So so that that does lead me to my last question here. And then I want to jump into the next segment of the show. But before we get to the to the final segment of the show, I do have one more question for anybody that's out there that is thinking about starting a food business, a food production business. And it doesn't necessarily have to be bananas. It doesn't necessarily have to be imported. But for somebody that wants to get into food production and retail, what's your best piece of advice?
2: So if you're looking at Retail. Just know you're going to have to raise money to scale. Uh, it's impossible to do so without raising capital. Uh, I would also say start online if you don't have a sort of a native background in direct to consumer or Amazon. Uh, either one of those two channels are great. I would recommend doing both. Oftentimes people will be like, "Oh, but i you know Amazon cheapens my brand and I'm scared." And you know, on the other side, it's like uh, people make just Amazon only brands that aren't brands; they're just products. And so don't do either of those things. Make an awesome brand that can be DTC and also be sold on Amazon. And that will allow for you to not have to pay that pay for that 42 percent margin that somebody like Whole Foods or Target or whoever is going to take from you. So start there. When you think about going into retail, be so, so, so mindful of your channel strategy. Make something that tastes delicious and looks awesome. And good luck.
0: Thank you. That was great. Great advice. Okay. With that, Nick, let's go into the final segment of our show that is called the Four More. Okay. So these are four questions plus a more question that we ask all of our guests, and we're going to throw them at you rapid fire style. Okay. Can you handle it? Love it. Okay. Okay, not,
1: Jay, you take the first. It's one. not really going to be what? rapid fire. I mean, we we both speak a lot more slowly than he does, <laughs> so so
0: totally. We'll we'll try to we'll we'll step up to like turtle uh, pace. For okay, you.
1: so Nick, what was your first or your worst job ever, and what lessons did you take from it?
2: Ooh, worst job? I've had so many bad jobs. Um. <laughs> Or every job is a great job, depending on your perspective. I think every job that I've had is a great job, but the worst great job I've ever had was making sandwiches at Subway, living in the ghetto, and then driving to this opulent neighborhood to go make sandwiches for rich people, and then, you know, just having them look at me like I'm the scum of the earth, and like this weird, like, you know, kind of, ugh, and you smelled like the bread, you know, you walk into a Subway and (laughs) you smell that bread, your whole existence smells like that. So that was probably the the worst one (laughs) for a lot (laughs) of us. I know this
1: isn't about me, but I I just have to throw out my very first job and probably also my worst job was I worked at a country club making sandwiches for golfers on the 19th hole. And let me tell you something. I walked out of that job hating golfers. For years, I used to talk about how I hated golfers. Then I started playing golf, and I don't really hate golfers anymore. But yeah, yeah, I, I know when you're young and you're like uh, catering to, to wealthy people who don't necessarily respect or appreciate what you're doing, that can be tough.
2: That's exactly what that is. That is hilarious.
1: And, and that's why as we get more successful, we treat
2: everybody well
0: absolutely well you
2: never know who's making your damn sandwich just remember that. <laughs>
0: exactly <laughs> you never know Okay, Nick. What's an opportunity along the way that you've said no to, and do you think it was the right decision?
2: Opportunities that I've said no to. So one of the bigger ones that come to my mind. So when I was in high school, I played in uh, you know a, a metal band. Um, I wouldn't even call us moderately successful at it, but there was a lot of interest from some record labels at the time in the Denver area. And so uh, you know around the time I was graduating high school, and I had this master plan of going to California and go to college and all these things. And I was I've been a musician. My my whole life, and so I just loved playing death metal on stage. It was just—it's like the most kinetic type of live music ever, and it was really fun. And, and, and you know, I had this opportunity to to go and and do that, and you know, pursue the the record label route and the touring and all the stuff. And um, I decided not to do that. Um, that was an opportunity that I turned down uh, because I had seen a couple of people that were older than me that took that route, and they had a great time on tour and, and just sold out shows and and all the stuff. But, you know, they never made money. All their stuff was paid for, but they were never really making money. And, and oftentimes that turns into, you know, you just keep doing the same thing over and over. And unless you become, you know, a Slayer or, you know, one of these types of guys, it's going to be a, a, a rougher route. So that was one of the bigger opportunities that, that I had said no to really early on, actually. So, so Slayer
1: or Billy Joel, you know, Billy Joel's first band was uh, I'm a big Billy Joel <laughs> fan. His first band was a heavy metal band called Attila.
2: Oh, I know Attila. Yeah, what? Billy Joel was in Attila. Billy what? Joel was in Attila back <laughs> in the
1: early seventies.
2: What? That's awesome. <laughs> it's just whack.
0: Shout out that to is Billy just Joel. Not even wow.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so question number three of our four more. Uh, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give yourself before starting Barnana?
2: I would. I, if I. Mm. Yeah. So if I was going back in time, so I'm in my so I'm in my uh, Bill and Ted Excellent Adventure movie yep, of my life. Yeah. In Pop the, into uh, the elevator, phone booth. booth yep. Yeah. See, show you how much I remember that movie. <laughs> Pop into the phone booth. <laughs> that was an elevator. Um, <laughs> oh, it might have been. Yeah. I don't want to mix it up. I'm old. My mind's going. And I get in there and I find myself. I would just. I just give myself a straight up pump up speech. I'd be like, dude, don't listen to anybody. Okay. And just do your thing. Keep, keep going. Just keep doing it. Be happy. And if you grind hard enough and work hard enough, then you'll get to where you want to go. That's what I would do.
0: That is awesome. I want to repeat that. If you grind hard enough and you work hard enough, you're going to get where you want to go. That was very powerfully said. Thank you. Okay. One last question of our four more, which is, Nick, what is something along the way that you've splurged on that was totally worth it?
2: (laughs) Splurge. 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 I like that word. Um, (laughs) What have I splurged on? (laughs) What have I splurged on? Oh, Oh, man, I don't splurge on much, to be honest with you. But I guess one thing that I splurged on was uh, bed like a legit bed. Forever, I was like on this bed for like I don't know. It's like this used mattress that I got from somebody else that used it for ten years, and I was sleeping on the damn thing. And it's like super not good for sleeping stuff. So <laughs> 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 that, that
0: totally defeated the purpose. That's how
2: you know you've
1: arrived. You now sleep on a bed.
2: Right? On a normal bed. Yeah, I didn't have a bed frame. I never had a bed frame until like, I don't know, four years ago or something like that, just like using cinder blocks on the ground. And then, um, you know, I was using a, it was actually the last mattress that I had was a used mattress from like a Hilton Hotel in San Diego that I got for free. And so I'd been sleeping on that forever. And eventually it just dawned on me like, okay. It's time to like actually get sleep in at some point yes. and probably get a bed that <laughs> that helps me along. The way.
0: So you bought an awesome bed and now you sleep well and life is complete. That is phenomenal. That's right. <laughs>
1: Awesome. Next time you're going to come back and tell us how your business has thrived since you now get a full night's sleep.
2: (laughs) I'm still waiting for that day.
1: (laughs) Okay. So that was our four questions. Now here's the more part of the four more. Where can our audience find out more about what you're doing, find out more about Barnana and find out more about you, Nick Ingersoll?
2: Yeah, so if you want to get into contact with me, uh, you can DM me on the gram at Ingersoll, N-I-K. The last name is hard to spell. Stars with an I-N-G-E-R-S-O-L-L. Uh, thanks, Scandinavia, for giving me that last name. So you can hit me up on Instagram if you have any questions for me. I also have a podcast called The Nick Ingersoll Show, spelled the same way. Available wherever you are listening to this wonderful podcast. Um, and you can go to Barnana.com to find out more about Barnana. You can also pick it up in Whole Foods or in a your other fine fine retailers and that is about it for me that's where you can find me so hit me up if you have any questions i'm an open book and i really do genuinely mean it uh when i say i want to help people out so let me know
1: awesome you didn't mention amazon i assume we can get banana products on amazon.com yes sir excellent that's where i'm going next (laughs) Nick, this was awesome. This was tremendously informative. I still have a billion questions to ask, but I think we are pretty much out of time, so I'm going to let you go. But thank you so much for being here today and and sharing your story and your uh, and your expertise with our listeners.
2: Thank you, guys. It was awesome.
1: Thanks,
0: Nick. We'll see you soon.
1: Okay, that was a really great show. You know, my favorite part was it took till the end till he said it, but I really love the part about not listening to what anybody else thinks. Basically. Take feedback, listen to criticism, but in the end, don't let anybody else's opinion stop you from moving forward and taking control.
0: I know, right? He is just, he has so much energy. He has so much enthusiasm, so many actionable tips, and he is just himself every step of the way, doing things in an unconventional manner and rocking it to make his business incredible. So cool.
1: And you know the fact that he was so on point and so energetic really made our jobs easy. This was an oh easy my one.
0: gosh, easiest interview ever. He was amazing. Loved it.
1: <sighs> yes, this was this was great. So I can't wait to go out and try some banana chips. Oh was, my
0: gosh, me too.
1: I was looking on Amazon before this show, and I'm going to order some now because I'm Yay. really hungry.
0: I know they look delicious. I'm very excited. <laughs> cool. Okay. Anything else to add before we sign off? Let's wrap it up, baby.
1: All righty. Everybody have a a wonderful week. She's Carol. I'm Jay.
0: Now go ignore everyone else's cynicism today and make yours great. Have a super awesome day, everybody. See you guys. Bye. Thank you.